unpacking Fulton County's case against the former president. The indictment brings felony charges against Donald John Trump. Welcome to a special edition of the new Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy. And if you haven't heard, we have two new co-hosts. I'm Bill Nygut. Starting this fall, we'll be on Monday through Friday. And I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. We will also be live on WABE Radio 2. We're going to have a lot more details on that in the coming weeks. But today we have plenty enough on our plate. Just unpacking the Fulton County indictments against Donald Trump and 18 of his co-defendants of his allies in Georgia. We're going to talk about what we know about the indictments, what we've learned since they were unveiled late Monday night, and what's next in the case. We're sitting here after hours and hours of reporting. I still have not gone to bed, guys, since since Monday. I uh, I didn't get home until about 3 a.m. in the morning, and then I had stuff to do. With, I had a TV hit at 5 a.m., and I said, you know what? I might as well not get the two hours of sleep, and it has been just nonstop. The AJC has had dozens of stories move since uh, since the indictments came out. Greg, it's been like drinking from a fire hose, or maybe it's been like shooting from a fire hose. I guess maybe we're on the other end of that. Um, but yes, I don't think any of us got a whole lot of sleep last night, but there was a, an immense amount of news to cover. Um, Tia, I know you were, weren't you flying back when the indictments came down? What were you doing? So I flew back while you guys were, well, you guys and our other colleagues were sitting in that courtroom waiting the three hours for the indictments to be processed. And so by the time I landed, I kind of um, opened up a stream on my phone and saw the coverage start to unfold. Um, And I actually had a late night, some late night TV as well. So as I was in the studio is when the details started to come out. Um, and it has been impressive. Like, I know we were here to talk about the politics and the ramifications, but I do want to toot our colleagues' horns. All of us were working, but, you know, Tamar, Bill, we even had interns at the courthouse. Like, it was such a team effort. We had interns stationed at every corner, Bill. It was, uh, you know, next time we have a big indictment, you got to go down there, too. But we had, <laughs> we had it. Uh, planned out. I mean, it was, we had even given the interns who might not know what Gabe, who Gabe Sterling looks like or uh, George Cheedy or Jen Jordan, but we even gave them dossiers to look at so they could identify when Bean Wynn walked down the hall. You know, yesterday was my first official day on the job at the AJC. So I was in orientation out at Cox all morning and I kept saying to the terrific guy who ran the orientation i really i've got to get out of here because there's actual news going on but um being brand new i thought i'll go to bed early you're going to be up all night and i'll get great coverage from you in the morning which is what happened Well, if you've never been to orientation at Cox, that is a lot of excitement. Um, But if you are also just listening to us for the first time, welcome. And we invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. And we're back to the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump is facing what could be his most serious charges of them all 
here in Georgia. It's the case his loyalists have long feared because he's powerless to stop it, even if he wins his comeback bid next year. He can't order District Attorney Fonnie Willis to stop the probe. He can't pardon himself, and he can't rely on Governor Brian Kemp to pardon him, not that we'd expect the governor to do that anyways. We're here with the team to delve deeper into the historic Fulton County criminal indictment against the former president and 18 co-defendants. Today, we're going to talk about what happened, what it means, and what's next. Bill, let's start with you. This was a sprawling indictment, 19 defendants, 30 unindicted co-conspirators, dozens of pages, more than 100 separate acts that prosecutors depict as a criminal enterprise, a net haul that includes household names like Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman and others that even veteran Georgia politicos have never even heard of. What did you make of the names on that list? It was unbelievable to uh, see the sprawling nature of these indictments. I was thinking, Greg, about the difference between this indictment, Fonnie Willis's indictment, and what Jack Smith did in terms of the election uh, aspect of his uh, indictments. That was very narrow, very focused. Um, of course, the most important point in that being um, you know, a conspiracy against the United States of America. But what Fonnie Willis did was put this entire conspiracy, alleged conspiracy, together from crazy meetings in the Oval Office of the White House to the gathering of Georgia Republicans who became fake electors at the state capitol, which you uh, were able to access, Greg. Um, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> to, to the people in Coffee County breaking into election machinery. She laid out the entire alleged conspiracy um, and gave us the clearest picture yet of just how complex and overwhelming it is. And to give you guys a, key, a peek behind the curtains, it happened in an unusual way. We were not expecting this indictment on Monday, and there's good reason why. Two of the key witnesses who had been subpoenaed told us that prosecutors summoned them to testify on Tuesday. We were both down at the courthouse. I know, Patricia, I saw you down there on Monday when it wasn't slow, but expectations were low. We were kind of thinking that Tuesday would be the big day. Then former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan confirmed to us that his testimony was moved up a day. That was a big signal that that could happen on Monday instead of Tuesday. Here's what Duncan told me after he testified. You said uh, this was a pivot point for the country as you, as you, as you came out of the room. What, what do you hope your testimony accomplished? Well, I, I hope my testimony gets the facts, uh, you know, as they are and helps to continue to paint a real and honest picture. But, but politically speaking, this is a pivot point for this country to do something more than just stew on the, on the, on the 2020 election cycle, right? We're either going to, as Republicans, take our medicine and realize the election wasn't rigged. Donald Trump was the worst candidate ever in the history of the party, even worse than Herschel Walker. And now we're going to have to pivot from there, right? We want to win an election in 2024. It's going to have to be somebody other than Donald Trump if we do it. So politically speaking, this is an important pivot point for our party, right? To go focus on the things that matter, to take this conversation to America, not to Twitter, not to 10-second sound bites, not to YouTube clips. This is taking this to the kitchen table. I think most Americans care about the economy. I think most Americans care about a porous border. I think most Americans care about national security and public safety. These are issues that we win as, as Republicans. As long as we make this about the, the three-ring circus called Donald Trump, we're going to lose every time. And you don't have to go any further than Georgia to see that play out. So, Greg, um, I feel like... Jeff Duncan is um, engaging in a little bit of wishful thinking. I don't know if this is a pivot point for the country. I know he wants it to be a pivot point for the country, but also for Republicans when he says that it's time for Republicans to take their medicine and to stand up and admit what happened and admit that the election was not stolen. Um, you don't have to go to many Republican rallies to understand that that is not really the pivot point happening inside um, the base of the base of the party. Um, but it is a hugely important moment because it takes all of the events that we were covering in real time in the 2020 elections and right afterward, and they seemed, we didn't know if they were one-off events. We didn't know what one had to do with the other. We didn't know why Rudy Giuliani was in the state capitol. We had no idea that he was going to be there. We didn't know why somebody would go to Coffee County when that's a Trump 70 county. So all of these things taken in isolation did not make a whole lot of sense other than they were sort of pointing in the same direction. And what Fonnie Willis's indictment did is connect all of them together under one single um, conspiracy. And then she took it to the next level and kind of made it 3D 
and made that a part of a national conspiracy. And so when people read the indictment, and I really urge them to, she includes events in Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, all of these events happening in real time at the exact same time. It's a TikTok, a day-by-day list of what was happening when and where. And much of it has to do with Georgia, but a lot of it has to do with what was happening in other states. And Bonnie Willis in this indictment connects all of them together to demonstrate her her allegations that this was Donald Trump and his associates working together in an organized fashion, conspiring to overturn the elections, um, which she says, and which if she can prove it, would be um, a violation of everybody else who voted for Joe Biden and cast their ballots legally. I was going to just say back to Patricia's point and back to what you were saying about Jeff Duncan and There are lots of people who, with every new indictment, get more and more um, over, they're more and more over President Trump. They're ready to move on. They don't think he's the right person to lead our nation, whether it's because of his politics or just because of the drama or concerns about the actual allegations that he faces. Unfortunately, however, when you look at the Republican Party specifically is when that there doesn't seem to be a clear pivot. And that's what to me is troubling because at the root of it, we've got, you know, members of a certain party, not every Republican, but a big chunk of Republicans, as we all know, not only are they locked in with Donald Trump for better or for worse and Quite frankly, people like Jeff Duncan were on the Trump train until they perceived it as for worse. People like Brian Kemp were on the Trump train until they perceived it as for worse. Um, But in the process, Trump has really had a hold on the Republican Party. And so the Kemp's and the Jeff Duncan's of the world might be ready to pivot, but a big number of Republicans are not. And that's really the issue. Yeah, we heard from Jeff Duncan, uh, Patricia called wishful thinking. You know, it's funny from my perspective, I, you know, I, I, he had, he walked out the courthouse. He did a sort of a walk and talk. I followed him to his car. We did an interview down there. I tweeted out the video of the interview. The local media had heard him say that 12 million times, right? That, that is sort of the Jeff Duncan mantra. He has been out there for years now being aggressively condemning the former president, but to some, some members of the national media, they hadn't heard him. So there was jaws dropped like a, in some of the national media tents bill as I was walking around there, like, I cannot believe the former Lieutenant governor said all that. Can you believe it? I was like, yeah, he's, he's been saying that for years. You know, um, one of the things that really stood out to me was when Fannie Willis stood in front of the microphones early this morning to give her, uh, basically a news conference, um, what she, how she described what this amounted to. She said that President Trump was the head of a criminal racketeering enterprise. That is chilling to phrase it in those terms. That's what you think of when you think of organized crime leaders. Peter Baker in the New York Times in his uh, piece called it an alleged presidential crime spree. So this all has to do, I think, with what Patricia said, which is the notion that Fannie Willis put this entire thing together, all these disparate items in a way that we recognize it really was a large organized effort to overturn the election. Patricia, what struck me was how expansive, how big this indictment is. It spanned far beyond Georgia's borders, alleging this criminal enterprise that Bill just talked about operated in the battleground states of Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. So we're talking about, you know, I mean, she, she didn't charge anyone in those states, but I feel like Fonnie Willis opened the door for maybe some some prosecutions there. And we know from Fonnie Willis's own interviews. I mean, one of the things that stands out to me about Fonnie Willis is when, I think it was Tamar's first interview with her. Tamar asked her, Tamar Hellerman, our, our colleague who is the co-host of the award-winning Breakdown podcast, asked her about these, about, about why she brought the charges. And she said, look, when I first listened to that recording, of that phone call with Brad Raffensperger, she said, I hope Brad Raffensperger lived in Macon or somewhere. You know, and she looked it up and she realized he lives in North Fulton County 
That's her jurisdiction. It is her duty in her in her view to bring these charges. Yeah, and I think that this indictment also, we saw a number of names that were new to even many of us who have been covering this quite a bit, um, including a lot more detail and more names about the people who were involved in harassing Ruby Freeman, who was the Fulton County election worker, along with her daughter, Shea Moss, who were working at State Farm Arena. She um, and her daughter became just the subjects of almost an obsession by Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani. They continued to point to them, name them specifically. And Rudy Giuliani went to Georgia House and Senate hearings, played a video from State Farm Arena pointing to Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman and saying, look at them. It lo- they are passing illegal information off like it is heroin or some kind of dope. So comparing them to drug dealers, um, that in turn um, led other people who were named in this indictment. A gentleman traveled from Chicago to Atlanta and went to Ruby Freeman's home, um, also called her, knocked on her door. Um, she was enticed to go to a Cobb County police precinct. I mean, this reads like an like some kind of mystery thriller. Um, she was warned that she was in danger and needed to take steps to protect herself. Um, all of this proving that it, this wasn't a victimless crime. This wasn't about um, paperwork. It wasn't even just about an election. It was really about people's lives and the effect it's had on people's lives. It really has turned um, some of these people's lives upside down once they've been on the other side and the wrong side of these conspiracies. And so I think one thing that she was able to do, Fonnie Willis and her team, in this indictment was paint that um, kind of more emotional and personal picture and really draw people into the real effects of some of these actions. It wasn't just talk. It wasn't just freedom of speech and saying, but uh, I I didn't lose the election. The election was rigged. It was stolen. It really led to very real world, very dangerous effects on individual citizens in Fulton County as well. And I think that's a powerful piece of this indictment too. Yeah, I mean, there's a takeaway that I had, and we, we talked about this on the show yesterday too, is how big these indictments were right? How sprawling they were. Not, not just the fact that 19 co-defendants were, were, were named, but that this, this is a, as Bill said, a criminal enterprise. It's the same RICO charges she brought, uh, is the same sort of tactic, the same approach she brought against Atlanta Public Schools about a decade ago when she declared the Atlanta Public School System a criminal enterprise that was mostly bringing down, that was mostly negatively affecting uh, uh, students of color. Uh, who who were getting left out by this cheating scandal. But look, we have this sprawling case. And in the next week and a half, we're expecting the 19 co-defendants to surrender before next Friday at noon. So there's going to be a lot of movement in the courthouse. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, as we spent the last weeks or months speculating about what the grand jury might be looking at reading the tea leaves it's like the indictment we were right every every speculation was in there like we were like (laughs) coffee county might be part of the indictment the uh harassment that ruby freeman and shea moss face might be part of the indictment the rudy giuliani and the lies and misinformation he told at the legislative hearings might be part of the indictment um even I think I was, if anything surprised me, it's that the fact that in laying out her case for racketeering, she included activities by these individuals beyond Georgia, you know? So she mentioned other states like Arizona and Pennsylvania, um, which is, you know, according to the statute, you can do that in order to build a Georgia-based racketeering case. Um, but it it was very wide ranging um, in anything, quite frankly, that over the last, what, three years, anything that has kind of come out, you know, in the AJC or media reports or talking to elected officials as, you know, behavior from former President Trump or his allies that was deemed problematic. A lot of that ended up in the indictment. Bill, he is right. Uh, you know, Fonnie Willis seemed to have telegraphed every step of the way. We knew RICO charges could be filed 
because she, she basically outlined it. And then she hired a RICO expert, and she is a RICO expert herself. Uh, we and other media outlets have been reporting an awful lot about Coffee County and the potential for charges there, uh, partly because we could see the witnesses who were being called in the special grand jury, and they all pointed towards those. And then as we got towards the grand jury phase of this, we knew that you know when, when, you're, when you're bringing in Gabe Sterling, the state elections official, and the former lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, and the, the journalist, George Chitty, who never ended up getting to testify, but he was still subpoenaed, you know, you know the direction that's going to. It's going to talk about pressure put on state, state uh, Republican officials, and it's going to focus on the fake elector plot. So, so but let me throw out yeah. one aspect of this. Um, one of the examples of how she tied this vast alleged conspiracy together relates to Coffee County. So we had known, specifically because of the January 6th hearings, about this, what people have described as an insane meeting in the White House in which Trump was being encouraged by Michael Flynn and a few others to seize voting machines um, across the country to prove that they had been manipulated and there were fraudulent votes being cast. What Fonnie Willis was able to do, and then, by the way, what the indictment points out at some point is um, they decided they didn't need to have the military seize the machines. They had other ways to get access to that information. And it, because of that, she was able to tie Coffee County into this conspiracy because exactly that happened in Coffee County where um, we had Republican officials, the election director down there, uh, Sidney Powell, go in and access sensitive voter information. So that's a wonderful example of how she tied all this together and was able to uh, include that as part of the RICO charges. We should note that uh, Republicans, including the former president, do not think it's so wonderful, right? They are uh, the, the, the Donald Trump and his and his allies and other co-defendants are attacking not just Fannie Willis, but the investigation. One thing that's come out in particular, Patricia, which is really um, was kind of was a bombshell on Monday was when Reuters reported that the charges had been filed. We at the AJC and other outlets were saying, nope, the DA's office is telling us authoritatively they had not been filed. Well, it turned out there was a mysterious court filing that appeared on the docket for minutes before it was taken down. Uh, it ended up matching what the, the charges that were actually filed. The clerk's office has struggled to explain what happened. They said it was a, a fictitious filing. Then they said it was a computer glitch. Either way, we are now seeing Republicans who are allied with Donald Trump bring this up as a as a example of, they say of a corrupt judicial system. Yeah, I was on a um, conservative radio show this morning, and the first question about the indictment said, "Well, what about that document that was posted? What what about that?" And I said, "Well." Um, what about it? <laughs> it, it? It struck me as a clerical error uh, explained as fictitious, and it did not appear to be fictitious. It appeared to be just a big clerical blunder, and somebody hit a button. Um, but of course, we'll try and get more answers to that because we do want to be able to answer that fully. Um, but I think Republicans right now are, um, I don't want to say grasping at straws. I don't think that's the right way to describe it. I think that they are looking for any and every way to discredit this um, process. I do want to point out, though, that when you read the indictment, um, Republicans in the state of Georgia, Republican leaders are at the heart of the reason that Donald Trump was not able to overturn the election. When you go through this indictment, Brian Kemp, David Ralston, Butch Miller, uh, Brad Raffensperger are in this indictment over and over and over. And that is because they were on the receiving end of calls and texts and uh, messages that were in some cases just conveniently never returned um, to Donald Trump and his um, his team of lawyers, including Rudy Giuliani, looking to pressure these gentlemen in the state to call a special session of the Georgia General Assembly to overturn the elections, to not certify the ballots, to not certify the electors, to find some other way, any other way, other than the court system, which was available to Donald Trump and he was not having success in. Other than that, um, he was looking for any other way to stop this process from moving forward. And it was Republicans in the state who were not letting it happen. And so I, I think that shouldn't go unnoticed because as 
other Republicans, especially national Republicans, are saying that this is all a witch hunt. If you read the indictment, it was not Democrats who stopped Donald Trump. It was Republicans who recognized that his efforts were not constitutional and potentially um, not legal either. And so um, any efforts to discredit the process really should be preceded by reading the indictment itself. No matter what you think about the indictment, there are Republican leaders in the state who knew that what Trump was doing was not constitutional. I want to talk about what those Republicans, Governor Kemp, we already talked about Jeff Duncan, but Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, I want to talk about what they are saying now. Let's take a quick break and we can get back to that after a quick message. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. We're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You have three of the authors of The Morning Jolt here. We think The Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Okay, let's talk about what's next in this case, because we know one thing we've circled on our calendar, Donald Trump says he's going to surrender by next Friday. His attorneys say that. But we know that Trump is also planning what he calls a, quote, major announcement next week at his golf course in Bedminster, New Jersey, to push back on the Fulton County charges. Here's what District Attorney Fonnie Willis had to say about attacks from Donald Trump and his allies questioning her motives. I make decisions in this office based on the facts and the laws. Um, the law is completely nonpartisan. That's how decisions are made in every case. To date, this office has indicted, since I've been sitting as a district attorney, over 12,000 cases. This is the 11th RICO indictment. We followed the same process. We look at the facts, we look at the law, and we bring charges. She says it's a fact-based prosecution. Patricia, we know that Donald Trump's litigation strategy has been to delay, to challenge, to try to throw all sorts of legal obstacles in the way of prosecutors. And we expect a flurry of motions, including some that dismiss the indictments, others to remove the case to federal court. In fact, we've already seen Mark Meadows, his former chief of staff, file just that motion. It's going to be very busy in the filing section of the, of the Fulton County Courthouse. Oh, yes. And uh, there's a way to watch which uh, which documents come up on uh, the Fulton County docket. I'm sure uh, it will be flinging all day and all night because, as Bill pointed out, there are 19 defendants in this case. That is uh, that means 19 separate teams of counsel, um, 19 separate strategies, frankly, and 19 separate um, reasons for people to be thinking about what their next steps are. And so um, some legal experts that I've spoken with have said that they expect there's a chance some of these um, defendants uh, may uh, be working with the DA's office, and it may eventually be whittled down to a smaller number of defendants. In the meantime, we've got just a huge, huge case. Bonnie Willis said that she's hoping to get into the courtroom by within six months. That seems a little aggressive, but I think we will um, just start to see which motions stick and what the timeline looks like in real life. Yeah. You know, Tia, I was thinking while Patricia said that, um, that we know there are these 19 defendants. We know that currently we have this trial underway in Fulton County, brought by the Fulton County District Attorney, another RICO case, the Young Thug trial. That's been going on for months with multiple defendants. They can't pick a jury. Uh, the DA's office has been under some criticism for their inability to organize that more effectively. The judges had struggles trying to deal with it. So to have 19 d- political defendants, including the pres- former president of the United States, um, and other um, uh, 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 defendants in the same courtroom, 
um, is going to be a massive uh, effort. But, but to you, the, the other thing I thought about was it's certainly conceivable that part of what's happening here with 19 defendants and a number of unindicted co-conspirators who are, who are not named specifically, it's conceivable that what the DA hopes is that some of these who have been indicted might want to turn state's evidence and in fact help her case move forward. Yeah, I think that there's a possibility that not all 19 will go to trial, but Bill, I think your point is well taken that the YSL case, that other RICO case has kind of been a mess and um, the sheer number of defendants um, they've used that to their advantage to kind of like inject chaos into the process and slow things down. And so I was surprised to hear D.A. Willis say that she planned to try all of these defendants in the Trump case together because that just hasn't worked out so well in the YSL case. And there have been, you know, she started out with the number, some have now been severed, you know, and they will be tried separately. Um, it's just, I, I just wonder if this is her again early on trying to stay firm, hoping that some of these defendants might flip. But in in actuality, I don't know how she'll be able to really move forward just based on how difficult it's been in this other case. Yeah, many legal experts are questioning the, the six-month timeline that Fannie Willis has set out. <laughs> but if it does go forward within six months, it sets it up quite nicely for right before or right around the time of the March 12th primary, presidential primary in Georgia. Bill, the other big question we're facing in terms of the setup of this legal case is the judge. Uh, judge Scott McAfee is the judge who won this case, who who got it in the what they call the, the Fulton County Judicial Wheel. Judge McAfee is very, very new on the bench. He's been on the bench for about six months. He was appointed uh, by uh, Governor Brian Kemp a few months ago. Uh, he, before that, was an assistant U.S. attorney, a senior assistant district attorney in Fulton County. He's very familiar with Bonnie Willis. He's very familiar with that office. Uh, he was also an inspector general over at the Georgia Office of the State Inspector General. So he has a long career in uh, state prosecution and the DA's offices. But Bill, he does not have a long history of presiding over cases, and uh, no one can, has a long history of presiding over a case like this. No, uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch him as he gets up to speed once this thing does uh, get into court. Uh, motions are filed and that sort of thing. Um, he... he uh, he did tip his hand a little bit in terms of his um, unwillingness to accept um, any kind of misbehavior uh, in, by the legal community in cases. He, uh, not in June, he fined Lynn Wood, who of course was one of the uh, election denier uh, attorneys, the Georgia attorneys who got involved in trying to help overturn the election. He fined him $5,000, held him in contempt of court for violating an order against insulting former legal associates, saying it was unbecoming of him to take on um, uh, lawyers in an unbecoming way. I don't know the specifics of that, but just that he did go after Lynn Wood. But well, I'll say this, I did a little more research on him. Mm -hmm. um, he has some things in his favor. He's an Eagle Scout. <laughs> now, you know, when you, <laughs> Eagle Scouts are prepared for just about anything. He's a scuba diver uh, at the Georgia Aquarium, and by the way, he studied music at Emory University, where apparently he played the cello. So he's a man of broad interests. <laughs> wow. Bill came with his... Re he, someone did show prep today. <laughs> I slept last night. I had time. <laughs> yeah, unlike us. But Patricia, there's a big chance that... There is a decent chance he's not even the judge, right? We, we expect Donald Trump to bring a motion to move this to federal court. I've heard all sorts of things from legal experts who know a lot more about 
the law than me. Some think that there's a decent chance that uh, that that motion could prevail. Some think there's no chance at all. Either way, there is a likelihood that uh, that this case could be removed to federal court. It would still be under state law. State law would still be used uh, to try the case. It would still involve state law. It would just be in a federal court. But there's a couple advantages that could give Donald Trump. First of all, the jury pool would be bigger. It would not just be Fulton County. It would involve the whole Northern District of Georgia, which includes uh, some more suburban counties and some exurban counties. But secondly, he could get a, a judge that he appointed or a very conservative judge, federal judge. But thirdly, and this is the really interesting one to me, at least, um, if, it's a, if, if it gets removed to federal court, there's no guarantee. And it's very unlikely, actually, that it gets televised. But we, we do expect it to be televised if it remains in Fulton County Court, that means the public can see exactly what's going on behind those doors in, in court. Yeah, there are a whole lot of elements to Georgia state law that I'm sure Donald Trump did not know and was not briefed on ahead of his uh, conversations with state leaders in 2020, um, including the fact that uh, no one can pardon him if he actually is um, indicted and in, uh, well, he is indicted if he actually gets convicted here in Georgia. So there are a lot of kind of twists and turns in Georgia law and Georgia courtrooms. If it's um, removed to federal court, I think what you said is so important. It changes the jury pool. Uh, so we go from Fulton County, which is a 90% uh, Joe Biden county to a to a large swath of North Georgia. And a lot of that includes Trump country. So you are very likely to get jurors who um, just have a different mindset. They uh, certainly would have to be open-minded. They could not have already made up their mind in the case. They would certainly get um, a thorough going over by, uh, by the prosecution. But you just get a much more favorable pool of jurors if you can move that to federal court. Um, I think it's also important to remember, though, that no matter where it's tried, uh, Fannie Willis and her team will still be the prosecutors on the case. And so she will still continue to be involved in this case. She also um, brought on to her team um, a couple of years ago, RICO experts. So she has with her the leading state RICO experts um, in her corner, helping her put this case together. And so, uh, but at, in terms of changing it to federal court, we certainly expect that to be one of the very first things that Trump's attorneys try to do. Greg, one of the other the interesting things about this, if it if it stays in state court, um, Patricia already pointed out uh, some aspects of why in state court it's more uh, uh, difficult for Donald Trump if he's convicted. One of the things that makes it incredibly difficult is if you're convicted of a RICO uh, uh, felony in Georgia, violation in Georgia, it's a mandatory minimum five-year sentence. Yeah, there's a little bit of hedging. Tamar Hallerman, our, our resident expert, said that it could be five years probation instead of a five years prison sentence. But either way, we're talking about dozens of charges involving these, these, these co-defendants that could carry significant prison time. So yeah, this is this is this is very serious. Uh Tia, I want to talk a little bit too about the response we're hearing from those Republican leaders we mentioned earlier because there are some who line up with Jeff Duncan, maybe no one's as forceful as the former lieutenant governor in condemning the former president. Uh but there's also some who line up with Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and rallying to him and I know you recently spoke to her. And then there's some like Governor Kemp who have been somewhat silent. And then there's Congressman Rich McCormick, who you also uh, got a comment from. And he's 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 kind of trying to play uh, play a, a new route, I guess is a good way to put it. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting. So let's talk about these different camps. You've got, I would say, if a Republican was going to say something about the indictment, which there are plenty of Republicans who just pretended like it didn't happen and just didn't say anything. But if you're a Republican and you were going to say something, most Republicans um, went on the attack against Fonnie Willis, said that this is, you know, a witch hunt and politically motivated. And, you know, we saw a lot of we saw Stacey Abrams and Hillary Clinton trending because what about them? Why weren't they, you know, so. I would say that's a big number of conservatives who had that response. And then you also had not a small number of like the Kemp's and the Jeff Duncan's because Kemp did when after the indictment, President Trump has used that to continue to spread informa misinformation about the 2020 election. It's so always we saw Governor Kemp say, listen, guy, the election was not stolen 
you know, for the umpteenth time you lost. Um, he didn't say it like that. No, but, but he did say flat out the 2020 election in Georgia was not stolen. That's the th- and we've heard him say things like that, but he's directly he, he it was a quote tweeter or quote X, whatever you call it now, over Donald Trump's message saying that the election was rigged. So this was the most forceful confrontational yeah. step I've ever seen Governor Kemp take when it comes yeah, to Yeah, going Trump. directly, you know, a direct reply. You're right. Because usually Governor Kemp doesn't directly come for President Trump, which is why Marjorie Taylor Greene is now so upset with Governor Kemp, because she told me today she was like, Governor Kemp should have just he should have just condemned Fonnie Willis. Don't worry about what Donald Trump is saying. I'm not I'm not worried about that. What I'm saying is we as Republicans need to be condemning Fonnie Willis. We need to be talking about what she should be focused on, which is crime in Atlanta and other what Democrats are doing and not Donald Trump. So she was really upset. So let's talk about Rich McCormick in this third category pretty much an outlier, which is what he said was he condemned the indictment, but in service to his preferred candidate, which is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And he was very direct in saying that, like, you know, this shows these indictments are a distraction and continuing to talk about the 2020 election is a distraction and he was like we need to get on what really matters to people and he he said you know to do that we must unite around governor DeSantis and his bold vision for America that's a direct quote from congressman Rich McCormick so not only is he all in for DeSantis which that's very few members of Congress have endorsed DeSantis compared to Trump, but he's going after Trump in the name of DeSantis, which is pretty rare. I guess it's a third way. Patricia, you've got a column this week on those Republicans who didn't go along with Donald Trump's plans, including the late House Speaker David Ralston, former Senate leader Butch Miller, of course, Brad Raffensperger, of course, Brian Kemp. So you take a closer look at those Republicans who are definitely not in the MAGA wing of the party, uh, but but also are very conservative. Very conservative. And Brian Kemp is probably the most interesting because he's the one um, who is still in Georgia politics and wants a future in Georgia politics. And along with his tweet, um, which seemed like about three years late when he said the election was not stolen. I'm like, we, I feel like he could have said that three years ago. And yet went um, like mega viral. I mean, mega you know. viral. Yeah, I know. So uh, along with his tweet, very clearly, very, um, very directly said the election was not stolen. You've had three years to bring legal challenges and none has surfaced with any evidence. That's what he tweeted. Um, he also has said that he would vote for Donald Trump if Donald Trump is the nominee. So that is a real pretzel of a position that Brian Kemp is taking. I spoke with a few, I reached out to a few Republicans today to say, is that weird? Is that weird to both say that um, you are, you might take the stand against Donald Trump, you have been on the receiving end of unholy fire from Donald Trump, and yet you would support Donald Trump if he was the GOP nominee. To me, that seems strange. Um, and the Republicans said, no, that seems savvy to me. That's the smart thing to do. Um, so uh, I think it probably is the smart thing to do. I don't know if it's the most direct route to where, where Brian Kemp is going. Um, but it seems to be the requirement to be successful or even to be viable in the Republican Party. You don't have to love Donald Trump. You don't have to even um, like him. You don't have to believe he's telling the truth, but you do have to say you're going to vote for him. Bill, I keep on thinking about the fact that this is your second official day at the AJC (laughs) and the next two weeks are just going to be absolutely wild. We're going to have a steady stream of defendants in this indictment surrendering at the courthouse we're going to have Eric Erickson's The Gathering, which is bringing six presidential hopefuls, not named Donald Trump, to Atlanta. We'll be monitoring Donald Trump's response to the lawsuit out over New Jersey, to the criminal complaint over New Jersey. And we'll be covering the first Republican debate in Milwaukee. We don't know if Donald Trump will even appear there, but it could happen around the same time that Trump surrenders in Fulton County. We've got a lot on our plate. Yeah. And 
I want to go back to something I said a little bit earlier, because to me, over, over all of this, with this new indictment, is something really sad and stunning. We have a former president of the United States, to use that phrase again, being accused by the Fulton County District Attorney of running a criminal racketeering enterprise. We have never in the history of this country come anywhere close to a former president being accused of anything as awful and dramatic as that. And so in many ways, with all there is to talk about, and goodness knows we're going to have a lot to talk about, as you point out in the weeks ahead, it's really a very, on one hand, a sad day to think that that could have unfolded. On the other hand, I guess we can also say, but now we're going to get to see it play out in court. And that is, on the other hand, a triumph for the justice system. Patricia, do you worry that because this is the fourth indictment, that it becomes, I don't want to say mundane, because it wasn't, it's not mundane, but 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 the, the American public is starting to tune, I know people in Georgia aren't, but the American public is starting to tune this out, uh, or at least get tired of the, the, the humdrum of the legal battles over the indictments and these motions and it just gets muddy and kind of messy instead of being the extraordinary event that Bill was just talking about that should focus our nation's attention. Yeah, well, I think it's important that there are two different processes going on here that are so closely aligned, they almost seem like the same process. And of course, that's the political process, voters deciding whether they want Donald Trump to be their nominee and then their president, and then the legal process. There are so many indictments, to your point, Greg, um, nearly 100 specific charges against Donald Trump, four separate jurisdictions, there was a superseding indictment, I actually have, I, I have a hard time remembering exactly what the New York thing was all about. I do know, but it's kind of hard. I have to think about it. Um, yeah, hush it all runs together and, yeah. for your average. Yeah, hush money for a porn star. <laughs> but um, it, it does all run together. It's actually um, the easiest one to it, remember. <laughs> well, for, I guess for some of us it is. <laughs> But so um, I think for your average bear who's busy, who has to drop off carpool and has to go to the grocery store and go to work, you know, yes, they all run together. However, I do think it sends a message to um, voters who are still undecided. There aren't that many of them um, or people who had been for Donald Trump and now they're not so sure. I think the question isn't whether he's guilty or not. It's whether is this too much or not? Is there is there possibly another viable candidate who would be more successful and not have so many other prior engagements during the campaign season as Donald Trump. It's just all weighing down so heavily. Um, Now, all of that will not have anything to do with the legal process. And Fannie Willis, I think by going last, um, in a way, helped herself quite a bit because she is able to isolate the events in her document, she's able to proceed um, a little bit out of the main public eye. I don't think you want to be necessarily the focus of the nation's attention. You want to get your indictments, you want to get your witnesses, you want to get your trial date, and you want to get your court case done. And you want to get that done as soon as possible without a lot of um, hull, you know, hubbub and hullaboo. And so that's separate. And I think she wouldn't mind not being the middle of, um, of the world's attention right now. Tia, we, 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 we want to talk about the Democratic response before we close the show. You know, they weren't, Democrats haven't been completely silent on this, obviously. And you know, other indictments that were elsewhere, you, you did not hear a hue and cry from as many Georgia, leading Georgia Democrats. This one they couldn't ignore, right? Yeah, the Georgia Democrats had a little bit harder time ignoring it. Um, uh, Congresswoman Nakima Williams, who's the chair of the state party, she's been making the rounds. Um, she did a press conference today. She was on MSNBC. She's done some other hits again, but I think she's pulling double duty. But as someone where well, this is literally happening in her district, you know, because she represents Atlanta. Um, but also as a member of the state party who in real time was among the most vocal people saying, you know, the election wasn't stolen. Joe Biden 
won Georgia and patting herself on the back for helping that happen, quite frankly. So I think she's a little bit more invested. But, you know, we've heard from a few others, but still there are a lot of Democrats who are following Joe Biden's lead. And as we all know, he has refrained from weighing in Mm -hmm. as former President Trump has faced indictments. And so a lot of Democrats, again, have have followed his lead and, and done the same. Well, that is all the time we have for today's episode of the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all the stories we talked about today in this episode summary of the podcast. Coming up on Friday's episode, we'll answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can now call into. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. You can call anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Producer Jay Black and his legion of interns is standing by. Well, I'm standing duty today. Uh, we had the changing of the guard with Shane because he was up all night. So, you know, we, we did the march uh, by the phone at 6 a.m. So my shift will end at 6 a.m. tomorrow. We're going to bring oh. an intern in. Uh, and then <laughs> Shane will be back uh, in his regular spot on uh, on Friday. Bill, you had no idea what uh, what a sort of sophisticated operation you were joining. I d- this yes. is astonishing to me. <laughs> We release new episodes every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.